Well, good morning, church family. It's so good to be with you today. And today's a very special day for me. It is the Lord's Day. I get to administer the Lord's Supper. And it also happens to be my 13th anniversary as the pastor of Grace Baptist Church. And this, uh, this past week, Kate Lanfar sent a text message to my wife about this. And I share this with her permission. But the, the message said something to the effect that I've now been the pastor of Grace for more than half of her life. <laughs> that, that is an odd feeling. It, it starts to make me feel like I'm getting old. But it's also a really cool feeling as well uh, to know that I've reached the point in my ministry here where, where children in this church have grown up, and I've been able to watch them grow up, reach adulthood, get married, and then have children themselves. That's a really neat thing. And by God's grace, I hope that I will see those children reach adulthood and that I'll perform their marriage ceremonies and I'll see them have kids too. You see, that's my ambition. It's not to spend my life jumping from church to church to church, always looking for something bigger or supposedly better. No, my ambition is to put down roots in one place and to give my whole life to one city, one people, one local church, and to make the biggest impact that I can have in that one place. Okay, that's my ambition. And by God's grace, I'm going to see that through. And I'm hoping... I'm hoping that many of you have the same ambition. I'm hoping that you're going to make the countercultural choice to not chase after the new opportunity, so-called, not to chase after the, the, the bigger and the better, but that you'll commit to long-term faithfulness. One people, one place, all life long, if God and his providence should allow that and to commit to having a massive gospel impact among one people. I hope, I hope that many of you have that ambition as well. Well, turning now to the matter at hand. Four times per year, we set aside our regular worship service in order to devote ourselves exclusively to the observance of the Lord's Supper. And this is one of those Sundays. Now, if you're not really familiar with the Lord's Supper? Okay, very simply, this is a ceremony which was instituted by Christ on the night before he died. And in this ceremony, we take a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice, and these represent the body and the blood of Christ. And we partake of these elements together, and we do this to remember our Lord's dying love for us. This is a very special event on any church calendar, and it's a very special event here at Grace Baptist Church. And this is why here at Grace, we always set aside our regular worship service on these occasions. And so if you've been here at Grace for a little while, you're going to notice that things are different on Communion Sundays. Normally, in a worship service, we would spend the first half of our time uh, singing and, and praying and doing scripture readings, and then the second half we would devote to the sermon. Well, today it's a little bit different. We've mixed it up. So today I will give the first part of my sermon, and then we'll offer a hymn in response. Then I'll give part two of my sermon, then we'll pause for another hymn. Then I'll give part three of my sermon, and we'll pause for a third hymn. And then finally the service will climax with the, the partaking of the elements of the Lord's Supper. And we're all going to 
partake of the elements in unison. First the bread together, then the juice together. And if you've never done this before, just follow my lead and uh, you will not be led astray. On these Communion Sundays, I also like to set aside my regular preaching schedule so that I can devote my message to the theme of the Lord's Supper, uh, especially to Christ, who He is, and why He came and why He died. And I'm going to do that uh, this morning as well. And today I want to focus our attention on the final 12 hours of Christ's life. Okay, that would take us from his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, right on through the night of those, those trials, those kangaroo courts, through uh, the crucifixion, and to that afternoon on Friday when he finally passed away. I want to focus our attention on that, that whole roughly 12-hour period. As I look at those 12 hours, a couple of things strike me about Christ. First thing is the silence of Christ. Silence of Christ. Throughout that entire 12-hour period, okay, from his arrest to the trials to the crucifixion itself, we never find Christ begging anyone for mercy. We don't find him protesting the injustices of it all. We don't find Christ uh, pleading with anyone for release. Okay, on that front, our Lord was absolutely silent. Well, that begs the question, why no shouts of protest? Why no pleas for release? If he was an innocent man, why would he not demand justice? Of course, if you know Jesus, you know the answer to these questions already. Our Lord did not protest the cross because the cross was the main reason for his coming. It was the main reason for his coming. And he knew that from the beginning. He knew that his whole life was headed toward the cross. So he was not going to protest now that the cross had finally arrived. See, here's what the, the scriptures teach us. They teach us that in the beginning, God created a perfect world. Okay, this world was a paradise. There was... Nothing wrong with it. Everything was right. And the scriptures teach us that when God created the human race, he created them in holiness like himself. And the scriptures teach us that in the beginning, God enjoyed perfect fellowship with humanity. God walked with mankind in the Garden of Eden, in the cool of the day. He conversed with mankind as, as someone would converse with his friends. A perfect world with perfect fellowship. Of course, it didn't remain that way for long because the scriptures teach us that our first parents, Adam and Eve, through their own voluntary choice, they transgressed the law of God. They, they rejected God's kingship over their lives and they, they brought themselves out from under God's kingship and they decided to become their own kings, to do their own thing, go their own way. And this is what the Bible calls sin. It is the settled determination not to follow hard after God, but instead to do our own things, to follow gods of our own makings or to follow our own inclinations rather than taking our cues from the will of God. This is sin. In the moment that our first parents sinned, their natures were corrupted. A sin principle took root in them. And they also incurred legal guilt 
They had violated the laws of a perfect God. They were now sinners by nature and by choice, and they were guilty in God's sight because of that. The scriptures tell us that this, this curse of sin infected all of, of Adam and Eve's posterity as well, which means all of us. Every human ever born is born with this sin nature within them. They are born with the, the legal guilt that their first parents um, have passed down. This is why the world is such a mess today. The, the, the greed, the malice, the, the injustices, the, the wars, the, the oppression, everything that is wrong with the world today ultimately traces back to the problem of sin in the human soul. Traces all the way back to that original sin committed by Adam and Eve. The scriptures tell us that the wages of sin is death. Death entered the world because of sin. And I'm not just talking about physical death here, but also spiritual and, and eternal death. The scriptures teach us that, that the consequence of sin is separation from God, both now in this life and in the life to come. It is to be forever separated from God and all the goodness that God represents. This whole world is on a trajectory toward death and hell because of sin. But the good news is that our God is also a God of love. The scriptures teach us that God is not willing that any should perish. And the scriptures tell us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But something had to be done about this sin problem. And that's where Christ comes in. The scriptures teach us that Christ is the eternal Son of God, the second member of the Trinity. And that God determined to put away sin by sending His Son into the world to bear the consequences of sin for us. And Christ wasn't subjected to this against His will either. Christ voluntarily took on this task. He would leave heaven's glory and he would come to earth, he would robe himself in human flesh, he would live among us, and then he would go to the cross where he would take upon his shoulders all of the wages of sin. He would endure death and hell for our sakes. He would satisfy the demands of God's justice so that we could go free. He would accept separation from God on the cross so that you and I could be reconciled to God. That's what Christ was doing on the cross, offering himself as a substitutionary, sin-bearing sacrifice. And you know, Christ was uniquely qualified to be that substitute as the Son of God himself. He was a, a being of infinite worth. And so his one sacrifice for sins could cover the sins of the multitudes. But he was also son of man, and so he could substitute himself for other men. One man standing in the place of men. And this is why Christ was silent in the face of his arrest and all of these unjust trials, and then even in his crucifixion. He was silent because this was the whole point of his coming. His life was driving toward the cross from day one, and he knew it. And he was willing to endure it for our sakes. Besides that, protests would have suggested that Christ was helpless through all of this. Christ was not helpless. 
He was the son of God. He could have extricated himself from this whole situation at any time that he wanted to. He could have called ten legions of angels to, to exact revenge on those who were hurting him. He could have done that any time, but he did not want to. He was not helpless. He was not going to cry out begging for mercy as if he was helpless. In fact, at one time, Jesus said to his disciples, I will give my life of my own accord. And he, he said to them, I have authority to lay down my life and I have authority to raise it up again. He was not helpless. Then there's another reason why he was silent. It's because he knew the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah. Like this one in Isaiah 53, verse 7, it says, Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, so he did not open his mouth. In other words, ages and ages ago, God through the prophets had said, Messiah would come and this is how Messiah would die. This is one of the ways that you would know that this was the Messiah. He would offer himself like a silent lamb. His life would be sacrificed and he would not open his mouth in protest. Jesus knew those Old Testament prophecies and he was determined to fulfill them to show that he was God's son and promised Messiah. And so he kept his mouth silent. Even so, his silence is remarkable. When you think about all that he was called to endure, when you think about the horrors of it all, the injustice of it all, that he could keep his mouth silent shows us that no man was ever like Jesus. No man ever will be like Jesus. He is utterly unique. Then there's something else remarkable about this entire 12-hour period. And that is the sayings of Christ. The sayings of Christ. Now, Christ did not beg and plead and protest, but he did make seven unforgettable statements from the cross. Notice that number. Seven statements. Seven, the number of perfection. Seven perfect statements from our perfect Lord. And these seven statements from the cross are seven revelations about Christ and the meaning of his cross. Now, eight years ago, I offered a sermon on the seven sayings of Christ from the cross. Few of you were here eight years ago, and so some of what I, I say in the rest of this time might be a little familiar to you. For most of you, this will be brand new. I'd like to look at these seven statements of our Lord from the cross. I've grouped them into three categories. We'll consider them one at a time. Category one teaches us this about Christ. Teaches us that he is a merciful Savior. He's a merciful Savior. Let's begin with his first saying. It's found in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. If you're using the insert in the bulletin, you'll find all of these verses uh, written out for you. Luke 23, verse 34. In fact, this one isn't just his first statement. It's also a prayer. And here's what our Lord prayed. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, friends, many believe that Christ uttered these words at the very moment, the very moment that the nails were being pounded into his hands. And so truly, our Lord's mercy knows no limits. 
Think of this. He is an innocent man, but he is being executed. And even so, the first thing out of his mouth is, God, forgive these people. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is a display of his endless mercy. But friends, more than just that, it's also Christ fulfilling his office as our great high priest. Because here we see our Lord Jesus offering to God an acceptable blood sacrifice, namely himself. And then he prays for those for whom the sacrifice was made. And he prays, forgive them for they know not what they do, meaning those who were killing him, they were utterly blind to the magnitude of their crime. This is why Jesus asked God to be merciful to them. Now, you understand, ignorance is no excuse, which is why God, uh, Jesus still prays, God, forgive them. They were still guilty. They needed forgiveness. But even so, he was merciful to them. He knew they were ignorant of his full worth, ignorant of the, the weight of their crime against him. Forgive them, Father, he prays. So again, friends, truly, there has never been a man like Jesus. No one with a softer heart. And therefore, no one more worthy of your absolute faith. You can trust a man like this. You can follow hard after a man like this. That's the first thing he said from the cross. Let's look at the second now. This is found in Luke 23, verse 43. Now, allow me to set the context for this next statement. Okay? So the scriptures tell us that Christ wasn't being crucified alone on Mount Calvary. In fact, there were two others being crucified with him, one on his left and one on his right. But these two were criminals. They deserved to be there. But the scriptures tell us that, that as our Lord was being crucified, the crowd around him was, was mocking him. They, they were throwing scorn upon him. And early on, these two criminals were heaping scorn on Jesus as well, mocking him and saying to him, hey, if you really are who you say you are, let yourself off that cross. Show us who you really are. They're mocking him. But at some point during this, this whole ordeal, one of these criminals had a change of heart. And it was a, a work of God on, on this man's heart. There's no other explanation, but he has a sudden change of heart. And, and, and suddenly he tells the other criminal to stop mocking Jesus. And he says to this other criminal, look, you and me, we deserve to be here. We have wasted our lives. We've committed great crimes. We ought to be executed, but not Jesus. He's innocent. And then this man, he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. This was a, a simple, humble prayer, a, a, a request in repentant faith. He's saying, look, Jesus, I know up until five minutes ago, I was cursing you. And I know my whole life has been a waste. But now I see that I've been wrong this whole time. He says, I, I deserve what I'm getting. You don't. I'm a sinner. You're not. He says, Jesus, will you please just remember me when you enter your kingdom? He, he acknowledges Jesus as the Messiah. He believes in Jesus' resurrection, that he's going to die, but rise and establish a kingdom, that kingdom he's been talking about throughout his ministry. He just offers that simple, simple uh, expression of repentance and faith. 
And now we come to Jesus' second statement from the cross. He turns to that repentant criminal and he says this to him. He says, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now here we see Christ exercising the office of a king. He declares with authority, who shall be a citizen in his kingdom? But you'll also note here, he is declaring this to a man who would have no opportunity to be baptized, who would have no opportunity to perform any good works. In fact, the man's entire life to that point had been wasted, absolutely wasted. And he was not going to get off that cross. Except for for this expression of repentance and faith, he'd be able to do nothing to earn God's favor. And yet Jesus says to the man that he was now reconciled to God, that he would have a place in the kingdom. Now, friends, this is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. A doctrine which teaches us that the way we are reconciled to God is not through our own efforts, okay? It's not through religious rituals that we perform. It's it's not through good deeds out in the, the community. It's not through any of our own good works, okay? In fact, even thinking that we could somehow earn the pleasure of God through our good works, being what we are, fallen and finite creatures, it's a folly even to think that. The scriptures say it doesn't work. There's only one way to be reconciled to God, and that's to have a change of heart expressed in repentance towards sin and faith in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way. And this is what the man on the cross did. He expressed repentance toward his sin and faith in Christ. And Jesus said, you are justified now. You have a place in the kingdom of God. There's another passage of Scripture that explains why God has arranged things this way. It's Ephesians 2, verse 8. It says this, By grace you are saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, and not by your own works. Here's why. So that no one can boast. That no one can boast. So that nobody in heaven can say, Hey, I'm here because I was smarter than the people around me. I'm here because I was more moral. Because I did more good in my life than somebody else. That's why I'm here. See, then all the glory would go to that person. No, God has arranged it such that he gets all the glory. Just imagine those first moments after that justified criminal passed from this life into glory. Can you imagine what that would have been like for him to start? A man whose whole life had been squandered with vice and crime. And in the last hours of his life, he has a change of heart. And now he's in heaven. Can you imagine the worship that that man would have been offering to God? Because he would have understood it's nothing in him that brought him to heaven. It was all the mercy of God in Christ Can you imagine the worship of the angels and the saints in heaven as this this criminal was ushered in? Oh, the joy of heaven that day to see that God's grace has no bounds, that even a man like that can enter through heaven's gates. 
You see, God gets all the glory this way, through justification, by faith alone. And you know, the, the good works of the Christian life, all those things, they do come afterwards. But they're not to earn God's favor. They're, they're expressions of gratitude for what God has already done for us through Christ. It's, it's an expression that our heart really has changed, that now we do desire after God. They follow. They follow our justification. They do not precede it. Friend, you understand, if, if you're not reconciled to God through Christ yet, you understand it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how long you have been in a, a rebellious state. It doesn't matter how much scorn you have cast upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is available to you, and it's full, and it's free. All you have to do is express your change of heart, repent of sin, believe in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's all you have to do. We see here at the cross Christ's willingness to be your Savior, His his readiness to forgive, His willingness to throw open wide the gates of His kingdom and to let you in. We see His ability to do it. With a simple word, he can declare your change of location from kingdom of darkness to kingdom of light, from trajectory toward hell to trajectory toward heaven. He can do that with a word. Will you not embrace this Savior? Will you not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, now we look at his third statement from the cross. This one's found in John 19. Verses 26 and 27, Christ has already prayed for his killers, and he has is, he is redeemed a repentant sinner. Now in this third statement, he turns his attention to his most committed followers, like Mary, his mother, and John, his cousin, both of whom were absolutely devoted to Jesus. As Jesus looks down at the crowd... While he's being crucified, he looks down at the crowd. He sees his mom, Mary, there. And immediately, the scriptures say, he was moved with compassion for his mom. I mean, think of this. All of his suffering, everything that he's experiencing, and still, he's looking outward toward the needs of others. And he sees his mom there, and he is concerned for her welfare. Apparently, Mary's husband, Jesus' father, Joseph, he had already died. So Mary was a widow. Mary did have other sons, but maybe they weren't all that a son should be. And so Jesus didn't think they would be much help. So he's thinking about Mary. And so he turns to Mary and he says to her these words. He says, mother, or excuse me, woman, which is a respectful term in that day, but woman, behold your son. Behold your son. But he's not telling Mary to look at him. He's telling Mary to look at his cousin, the Apostle John. Look at your new son, John. And then he turns to John and he says, John, behold your mother. And he directs John's eyes to his mother Mary. Do you see what Jesus was doing there? He's making sure that his mom would be looked after when he was gone. That she would have a, 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 a young man who could look after her. See, friends, Christ loves his people. And he's moved to look after them. And he isn't concerned just with their spiritual well-being, but also their physical well-being too. He cares about the whole person, body and soul. And even from the cross, 
even from the cross, he was moved to care for his mother's physical needs. Now, friends, in all three of these sayings, in his, his prayer that God would forgive his killers, in his, his redemption of a repentant criminal, and in this, this compassion shown to his mother Mary, in all three of these passages, we see the mercy of Christ on full display. Here we see our Lord as our great priest and king the one willing to bear our sins, the one quick to intercede for us, the one quick to forgive, the one quick to come to our aid. And friends, let us all sing of our merciful Savior together now. Hymn number 317. So the cross reveals Christ's mercy, but it also reveals his resolve, his resolve. And we find this in the next two sayings from the cross. Christ's fourth saying is found in Matthew 27, verse 46. This one was uttered about halfway through his ordeal. The scriptures tell us that at this point, a dark cloud rolled over the whole crucifixion scene. Now this was unusual because it was high noon. And yet this dark cloud rolled over and shrouded everything in shadow. And of course, the darkness was letting everyone know that the cross was a place of divine judgment. You see, oftentimes in biblical history, darkness is symbolic of divine displeasure or divine judgment. Think, for example, of the plague of darkness that fell upon Egypt as God was was uh, seeking to release the Jews from slavery. See, God uses darkness to show his displeasure. And as that darkness was rolling over the scene, our Lord Jesus let out a great cry. And this verse records the words of his cry. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, friends, more than any others, this one has generated confusion among God's people. Because we, we hear those words, right? Why have you forsaken me? And, and we wonder what it means. Does this mean that Christ was suddenly confused about the cross? Like he had showed so much resolve all the way through to this point. Is he now having a crisis of faith? What, what's going on with Christ? Well, no, friends, Christ was not confused by the cross. And these words shouldn't be troubling to you at all. In fact, they should be among the most precious words in all of Scripture. Because you understand that the, the question why, it can express confusion, but it doesn't have to. Sometimes the word why is just an exclamation. It just expresses someone's pain. I'm sure you've, you've done this before. You, you've experienced some, some terrible tragedy in your life, and you understand exactly the, the series of events that led to the tragedy. If, if your theology is strong, you probably also understood it was all in, in the providence of God. You understood why this happened, and yet you still cried out to God, why? Why, God? It was an expression of your pain, your anguish in that moment. 
Well, that's what Jesus is expressing here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, our Lord Jesus was hurting on the cross. He was hurting because he was truly a God-forsaken man. As I explained earlier, Christ was on that cross to offer himself as a substitution for us. He was there as a sin-bearing sacrifice. And that required him to experience the wages of sin, to experience separation from God, to experience the horrors of hell itself. And that's what Christ was feeling on the cross in these moments. In fact, friends, I believe that this marks the very moment on the cross when the full weight of it all came crashing down on our Lord. This is when he experienced hell for us. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5 say, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And 1 Peter 2.24 says that Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. See, friends, Christ was forsaken of God on that cross. Not because of any sins he had committed. He was forsaken of God on that cross because he had offered himself as a sin-bearing substitute for us. And so on that cross, Christ gave up God's protection He gave up God's comforting presence. He volunteered to accept perdition to allow the full weight of God's justice to be borne on his shoulders. He allowed God's justice toward our sin to be satisfied on him so that we could go free. And friends, that terrible scream which Christ uttered in that moment signals to us when he felt the full weight of it all. When he felt the full weight of it, and I want you to see Christ there and realize, had he not done that for you, you would have done, had to bear that for yourself. So we thank Christ for being a merciful Savior and for having the moral resolve to see it through all the way to the bitter end. And then the fifth saying, John nineteen twenty eight. here our Lord simply says two words, I thirst. I thirst. These words speak to our Lord's physical sufferings on the cross. You see, yes, Christ was the Son of God, and and yes, the greatest suffering of the cross was the spiritual suffering, the being forsaken of God there. Yet we must never forget that he was also a man. He He had two natures in the one person, divine and human. He was a man, and as a man, he could be hurt. By this point, his body had already endured floggings and beatings. Nails had been run through his hands and feet. He had received no food, drink, or sleep for the better part of a day, and so he was indeed thirsty. Friends, may we never forget that the Son of God was a man, that he felt physical sufferings as a man would, but he was willing to endure it all. He was resolved to see it through to the very end for our sakes. Friend, in light of this, will you not give him your all? He died for you. Will you not live for him? 
Let's sing of what a great Savior we have in Christ together now. Hymn number 311. So the cross reveals Christ's mercy, it reveals his resolve, and now finally, the cross reveals Christ's triumph, his triumph. And we see this in the final two statements he uttered from the cross. The sixth statement is found in John 19, verse 30. In our Greek New Testament, it's only one word, tetelestai. And our English translation is three words. It is finished. It is finished. Now, what was finished? Many things, many things. First, his humiliation was finished. You understand that for our Lord's entire earthly ministry, he experienced one humiliation after another. After all, he had been the eternal Son of God, robed in glory, worshipped by angels, adored by saints. Nothing could hurt him in heaven. But all that changed the moment he took on flesh and came down to earth. He lived in poverty, he was mocked, and he was scorned. Finally, he was treated to the greatest injustice of human history, sent to the cross. His whole life had been a humiliation, but that was over now. He had endured the cross, despised the shame, and now he was looking ahead to his resurrection and his glory. But secondly, sin's full penalty was now finished. Christ had provided an all-sufficient atonement for our sins. It was finished. And thirdly, there was nothing left for him to do. All of his work was finished. He had been fully obedient to the law of God. Every sermon he'd been called to preach, he had preached. Every personal encounter that he had been called to, to have, he had had. Every miracle he had been called to perform, he had now performed. It was all finished. My friends, aren't you grateful to know that the work of salvation is a finished work? In fact, someone has, has said that the Christian faith is separated from all the other faiths of the world by just these two letters. In every other religion, you must do something. D-O. You must do something. In fact, you must do many things. You must perform these rituals. You must do these good works. You must, you must atone for your own sins. And it's a lifelong quest and it never ends. And you reach the end of your life never knowing if you had done enough. But in Christianity, it's different. Our faith is based on the word done. D-O-N-E. All of the work necessary to secure our reconciliation with God was done by our Lord Jesus Christ. His perfect life merited all of the righteousness that we needed. His death provided a full atonement for our sins. In Christianity, it is all done. We simply receive the gift in repentance and faith. It is finished. Jesus said. And then his final, his seventh statement from the cross. 
found in Luke 23, 46. It's a prayer. So he ends the way he began. He prays. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is important. Jesus had said earlier that no one takes his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. And he said he has authority to lay his own life down, and he has authority to raise it up again. And here we see our Lord, our Lord fulfilling those words. He lays down his own life. His work on the cross is done. Atonement has been made. And so now he prays, into your hands I commit my spirit. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his life. Released his spirit back to his father where it would await the resurrection of his body on the third day. My friends, our Lord's victory is our victory too. In Colossians chapter 2, the apostle Paul says, And you... You, who were dead in your transgressions and sins, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did he forgive our trespasses? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ triumphed at the cross. He triumphed over the devil, over sin, over death, over hell, over all of it. And you and I get to share in that victory. Now let's sing of our victory together with Christ. Hymn number 347. Spend some time contemplating the wonder of the cross. Now this is our opportunity to participate in the Lord's Supper together, this memorial of our Lord's dying love. So I'd like to ask the ushers if they would please come forward. As they're coming, let me just explain what's going to happen for those that may not be familiar with, with our practice here at Grace. First, we're going to distribute the bread. I'll ask you all to just hang on to the bread when you receive it. And wait for my signal, and we'll all partake of that bread together. Before that happens, you'll hear the instruments playing. We'll offer a prayer, and then we'll eat. And if you are here today as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning that, that you know him, and he is your God, and, and you are his child, that you have closed with Christ, we invite you to partake with us. You don't have to be a member of Grace Baptist Church to partake, but you do have to know Jesus. This is a supper for those who know him, to renew their commitment to him and to their fellow believers in Christ. If you've not yet received in, uh, Christ in faith, then we'd ask you to simply let the, the plates pass by. No one will judge you. In fact, we'll be grateful that you would honor the teachings of the Word of God and the traditions of this church. But simply allow the elements to pass by, and perhaps you can engage in some silent prayer during this, this time. Perhaps you'll consider receiving Christ himself in faith as the others 
participate in this memorial of his body and blood. Now that we understand the supper, let's begin this memorial together. So the scriptures tell us that on the very night in which he was betrayed, our Lord first took some bread, and then he offered a word of thanks. So I'd like to ask Luke, if you would please take the microphone and offer thanks for the bread before us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for uh, this time of remembrance of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for this bread represents his body, broken for us, Lord. Uh, we thank you for sending him to save us. In Jesus' name, amen. And Jesus broke the bread and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then the scriptures tell us that our Lord took the cup and gave thanks once more. I'd like to ask Matt Domsig if he would please take the microphone and give thanks for the cup before us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that you've supplied for sinners. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ and his blood that gives us remission of sin. Lord, we're so thankful for all of the means of grace that you supply to us. And Lord, we do praise you and thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. And Jesus lifted the cup and said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And finally, our Lord said, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. To all of God's people say, Amen, and come, Lord Jesus. <laughs> 